My name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about one of the titans of avant-garde cinema, and just cinema appreciation itself, Jonas Mikas. Filmmaker, writer, poet, diarist, promoter, public figure, friend of everyone from Andy Warhol to Jackie Kennedy, and somebody for whom all of these different occupations bled into each other. Because while he made so many movies, his motion pictures don't necessarily get classified with the Stan Brackages or even the Maya Darins. But film classes being able to talk about those filmmakers was helped immensely by Mikas's work. Yeah, this is a man who fought obscenity charges when he was showing movies like Jack Smith's Flaming Creatures or Jean Genet's Enchanté Amour, uh, the organizer of countless screening series and retrospectives, and particularly importantly, the founder of Anthology Film Archives in Manhattan, which is probably the most important exhibition venue for avant-garde and experimental film, although it also shows lots of other kinds of films. Yeah, like Hong Kong movies. (laughs) That's right, Hong Kong movies. But also just a man who had his hands in lots of different films and activities. He operated the camera for Andy Warhol's film of the Empire State Building, He wrote the incredibly influential column Movie Journal for The Village Voice from 1959 to the 1970s. He founded Film Culture Magazine. Like, he had so many hands in so many pots in ways that were actually important to the history of film as we view it today. But I want to ask you, Will, why did you want to pick him as a subject? Like, where did you learn about him and find that he was an important figure for you. Well, the anthology film archives is important to me uh, during the year that I spent living in Manhattan, uh, which which is like Jonathan Rosenbaum's time in Paris, right? <laughs> <laughs> Will could see my me smiling on camera. <laughs> but, you know, what, what can I say? I used to go to the anthology film archives a lot. It felt like I, I didn't know much about it before going, and it was probably my favorite venue there. On weekend afternoons, they would show classic experimental films, Stan Brackage, the Kuchar Brothers, Maya Darren, Stan Vanderbeek, Robert Breer, Robert Frank. I, you know, I would see retrospectives of these people, and it was, you know, immensely important in my own understanding of film, just, just expanding the scope to me of what film could be. If you read Mikas's collected movie journal articles, what you're going to quickly discover is that he was an all-encompassing lover of film, that he wanted to approach everything from a million different angles. Now, he had his own aesthetic beliefs and theories of what made good cinema in his eyes, but mostly it was trying to fight against slickness and the entirety of what Hollywood was putting out. He was all about selling the reader on, oh, there are other forms that cinema can take, and let me show you who those people are and why you should watch them. I was flipping through the movie journal book this week. His best columns are collected in a book called Movie Journal, and I really think that it is one of my favorite books about film. He doesn't call himself a critic. He calls himself a midwife, and he is very much a promoter of these films. You know, week after week, 
He's talking about uh, last night, Stan Brackage, our premier film poet, just unveiled Dog Star Man, and it is colossal. You know, like you're not there necessarily for brilliant critical insights on the works themselves, but the book is amazing as a document of this time when what he called the new American cinema was emerging. Like, it seems from reading him week after week, you know, there's Cassavetes, there's Shirley Clark, there's uh, Stan Vanderbeek, Andy Warhol comes along, and it feels like there's this revolution brewing that, you know, probably didn't actually happen, right? It didn't, because it never really penetrated the mainstream in a way that, like, the French New Wave did. Like, it's there, it exists. This is the peak of it, and when you read column after column— there is a sense in Jonas Mikas's voice that sooner or later, the world's going to catch on to this. The world is going to find out that there is a poetic side to cinema and, you know, the the tyranny of plot and structure and, and the Hollywood way of doing things will be overturned. So it feels like dispatches from a lost battleground. His belief, you get the sense when you read these articles, is that eventually people will realize that Hollywood is trying to feed them faux intellectualism and they'll realize that these artists are making something that's more pure, that's a primal scream that can capture something that no other art form can. And, you know, he's very honest about what these movies are. Like, you know, they're either slow or you need to approach them from a different angle. And I think, like, reading him makes you want to go and check those movies out. And you feel, I think, most importantly, that that passion is genuine. Like, he is not just a propagandist that is doing this because somebody is putting money in his pocket and going, listen, just advertise these films, you have the cultural cachet, and then we'll move on from there. He doesn't just believe in these movies he wants to make some as well that will have that much of an impact just to give people a sense of it i'll read a paragraph from the early 60s he says cinema is beginning to move cinema is becoming conscious of its steps cinema is no longer embarrassed by its own stammerings hesitations sidesteps until now cinema could move only in a robot-like step on pre-planned tracks indicated lines now it is beginning to move freely, by itself, according to its own wishes and whims, tracing its own steps. Cinema is doing away with theatrics. Cinema is searching for its own truth. Cinema is mumbling like Marlon Brando, like James Dean. That's what this is about. New times, new content, new language. And I think this idea of a cinema that is that is free holds up. Because he has enemies in this book. He... He's constantly railing against the critical establishment. Pauline Kale. Yeah, yeah. Like he's he's railing against New York critics, like the the New York Times, or you know, uh, fuddy duddy censors who want to shut this down. And he just wants people to look outside the box of, you know, what mainstream polite society tells us uh, a well made film should be, and. It's not even just limited to experimental and avant-garde film. He talks about loving, you know, action movies. He talks about loving Howard Hawks and John Ford. And he talks about loving, you know, softcore porn films on 42nd Street and Westerns. You know, he's very Catholic in his taste. At one point, he talks about going to go see a film that has the structures of pornography, but he says that he's sitting there going, why don't I just watch real pornography? Because there's something more pure about that. Like, I've seen pornography that has cuts that are as beautiful as what you'd see in Eisenstein's work. Like, he is a believer in film being able to do everything and not limiting yourself 
in a way that some people like Cage Cinema would say, okay, we are taking this stance and we're going to die by this stance because it gives us our identity. While Mikis was like, oh no, I want to be all encompassing and that way you will have a more fuller experience with this art. I also think he's just a delightful writer who's great company to be with. I'll read one more paragraph here on John Ford. In 1963, he wrote, The John Ford series at the New Yorker Theater showed clearly what a magnificent man Ford is. One of his virtues may be that he makes no fuss about film art. He simply has it in him. He is just doing his job, like a good carpenter, like Manny Farber. Once you realize that to practice life is more important than to practice art, you are okay. The reverse can also be true, if you know what I mean. I mean, I don't know. I think that's delightful prose. I think that what's important for people who haven't read him before is to know that he's fun to read. It's like reading a really enthusiastic friend talking about something that they love. There's no academic jargon. And while it can be very poetic at times, it's fun to read. And like the stuff in the movie journal collected book is all really short too. Like, you're not like, oh my God, 10 pages about this one thing. It's like him running into a room, talking to you for five minutes and then running out again to discover something else that he wants to share with you. Now, Jonas Mikas had an unusually long and eventful life. He died just a little over a year ago, in fact, at the age of 96. He was born in rural Lithuania in 1922 and spent some of his younger years under the occupation. He and his brother left in 1944 when the Red Army came in, but when they were in Germany, they were put into a forced labor camp and spent eight months there. In the, in the last year of his life, there was some controversy because a historian dug up that Jonas Mikas was, uh, wrote, for, wrote for a newspaper that was quite vociferously anti-Semitic. Um, he himself didn't do any anti-Semitic writing, um, but that was, that was kind of an eruption just in the last year of his life. The last year of his life when he was 96 years old? <laughs> like... Yeah, 96 Finally, years old. I got the stuff that's going to take Jonas Mika's down a peg. Yeah, and it, well, it ended up leading to, I think one of the last significant things Jonas Mika's ever did was a very long interview with the Holocaust Museum, where he did like a four-hour interview talking about what he remembered about the occupation in Lithuania. So that was a bit of an earthquake lately. As a filmmaker, what you have to understand is that all of his films are essentially diaries of him carrying his camera everywhere he goes and capturing just brief moments, which he then edits into really quickly cut, just in-your-face stuff. Watching Walden, his three-hour movie, it's essentially like watching the home movies of like Shinya Tsukamoto, if he's like shaking it like he was doing a Tetsuo scene the entire time. Yeah, I think what's important to remember about his films, and there are many of them, of many varying lengths. There was a year that he made one a day in I think like 2000 or 2006. Oh wow, just like uh, Matt Farley. Exactly. <laughs> but what's important to remember is, as a refugee, he basically lost everything. You know, he and his brother came to the United States in 1949 with a couple of nickels in their pockets. One of the first things they bought when they were in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, was a Bolex camera. And it's very easy to psychoanalyze him and say that these movies are the exercises of somebody who their their whole past is gone, and so they're trying to preserve whatever they can. And I think the movie's probably look better, I'm just assuming, they probably look better in retrospect than they did at the time because they are bottled time. Well, looking at them at the time, or if you want to give it a bad faith reading, you could say like, oh, these are films just about him. 
that they're always from his perspective and he's not saying anything beyond his own experiences. Like Walden is just, you know, a bunch of scenes from his life with like humorous inner titles along the lines of like, I found rabbit shit today and then edited and cut within an inch of their life. Yeah, I mean, he was working with a Bolex where, you know, it was a spring operated camera that didn't record sound. So, yeah, it, as you say, it is it is very fragmentary and assaultive in its visual style. What it documents, I mean, it documents everything. It's three hours long, and it is partly a record of what was happening in the New York avant-garde art scene at the time. So, you know, you see the Velvet Underground's first show. You see Andy Warhol, Allen Ginsberg. Carl Theodore Dreyer shows up at one point. Uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono uh, while when they were in their bed period. You also see Jonas on the bus, and you see him go to a lot of weddings. Oh, God. Too many weddings, maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, at one point towards the end of the movie, you see, you know, some particularly uneventful shots of just stuff happening in Central Park, and Jonas narrates it by saying... These are just images shot by me, for me and my friends. They are nothing more than that, and just enjoy images. And he said that, and I thought, oh, good. I'm, I'm glad I'm not supposed to be looking for any deeper meaning into this stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like flipping through someone's diary, right? Except you're watching it through their eyes, which there's something novel about that. That kind of a naked feeling of just, you know, you could feel Mikas just there pulling that trigger or flipping that switch, just letting it roll for a little while, seemingly shaking the camera all the time. Like the camera doesn't move like that unless you shake it. He has a great pictorial eye. His films are full of beauty. In fact, one of his later films was called As I Was Moving Ahead, I Saw Brief Glimpses of Beauty, which is a good like thesis statement for his films. And I think one thing that I find charming about Walden is like it is a it is a man's life. It's not just hanging out with John and Yoko, although it is that. It's him riding the bus. It's him taking pictures of uh, bemused passersby in Central Park. It's the squirrels on the ground. And oh yeah, here we are in the very highest echelons of society. Here we are at John and Yoko's feet. Here we are with Andy Warhol and. One man unites all of these things, and it's Jonas Mikas. And it's cut as if you're remembering it yourself, and you just catch a fragment here or there. Like, you'll see Central Park, and then it'll cut to what looks like a Central Station, and it's out of focus. Someone is walking as the sun is setting in the background. Then it'll cut over to something else. Every time you think you have a grasp on what's happening, and Mikas uses inner titles in really funny ways like... And then next Sunday, as if this was all like a chronological thing, when really it's just jumping all over the place. That is interesting to watch. Now, three hours, that's a little bit punishing, <laughs> but it's an art film that these people that were probably originally going to watch it, this was a commission project as well, based on footage that he had just shot on his own time. They would have probably been trapped in the situation, and that's how the experience would have happened. When I watched it, I watched it over two nights, which is pr pr probably the way to do it. But there's there's a lot of beauty in there, and something that I something else I like about it, and I just watched one of his short films called Williamsburg, which was footage that was largely shot in the 50s that he assembled in the early 2000s, and it's mostly unremarkable footage. It's people in Williamsburg, it's kids playing on the street, it's cars going by, and it's like, well, here's something from the past that was preserved. 
we have a lot of documentary footage of extraordinary events. You know, you can see Neil Armstrong land on the moon or you can see John F. Kennedy get shot. But here are just some random people who lived in Brooklyn at that time. And here they are preserved like bottled time. I also watched Reminiscence of a Journey to Lithuania, which is interesting because it's the exact same style as Walden because it was shot around the same period, but it's more directed in its subject. It's about him going back to his home country after 25 years of being away. So you get to watch with him as he meets his mother for the first time after what's seemingly an eternity, meeting his family. Just the things and the patterns to just fall into place as all of this comes rushing back to him. And then it even reaches at the end, there's a parentheses where he goes and sees the place that he escaped from, the place that he hid when he ran away from the labor camps. You hear his voiceover here or there, just giving enough context to give you a way to look at it, but its emotions are just there on the screen that you're supposed to project his experiences and the way he edits it and the way he cuts it again, as if he's like shaking the camera, like he can't wait to go point it at something else. And some of his later films, like the ones he made after the year 2000, he finally embraced digital video. Well, he loved digital video. So some of the later ones have uh, moments where you can hear his voice or you can hear him sort of ruminate with people. Like there's one, there was a viral clip that went around a couple years ago. I assume it was from one of his later movies where he talks about how much he admires Britney Spears as an artist and how, you know, when she was going through her troubles in the mid 2000s, he's talking about how all great artists are a little bit insane and uh, we, sh- we should allow Britney the space to be a great artist. You what know? I love about him is that while there is pretentiousness, because you have to have that if you're going to film yourself 20 there's also awareness of what he's doing and the work that's being made around him at one point in walden he's like uh my friend wanted some footage of underground style filmmaking so we shot in mirrors and stuff for an afternoon (laughs) to give him that kind of footage we also both watched an hour-long film that he made called notes on an american film director at work martin scorsese which is pretty exciting because it's just a document you know a pretty no-frills document of Mikas visiting the set of Martin Scorsese's The Departed and watching Scorsese work. One that has never officially been released, and is it because they can't get anybody to sign off on it or something like that? Like Leonardo DiCaprio, who appears throughout? I don't know. I don't know why it hasn't been released. Uh, I mean, it's available online if you want to see it. And in fact, I feel like for about 10 years, nobody knew about it. I saw it a couple years ago because just just i happen to know somebody who had access yes to it was it. me i gave it to you <laughs> oh oh it was you yeah that's i mean right. it's been floating around like for a while it was on vimeo but when i went to go watch it this week it was just gone so like i don't know if there's somebody who's like no one can watch this because it is so undramatic that you find it weird that anyone would care that this is out in the world and that's what's exciting about it is you get to see martin scorsese one of the most famous directors of all time just go through a bunch of days of filming it's just work <laughs> and not exciting days of filming no either. not exciting at all <laughs> it makes you realize just how much work and energy goes into a movie especially a movie at the scale of a martin scorsese film because you see him spending a whole day on a scene that's just Leonardo DiCaprio and the other guys in the gang just sitting at a table, then putting a bunch of money and drugs into a bag and then running out. 
just very simple action and it's going to be seen for like five seconds as part of a montage and that's a whole day and at one point he goes oh you know that was a good end of the scene but we're gonna have to do it again we didn't get the beginning of it (laughs) and like that's what being on a film set is it feels very intimate as well like i've read about like martin scorsese on the shot of hugo and he was like francis ford coppola or peter jackson like way away from all the cast members in his tent and that's where he was directing from while in this he's like they're in an office of some kind and you can see off to the side someone like flipped a chair onto a sofa to make way so people could walk through you feel almost like he's directing in like an intimate setting leonardo caprio just wandering around repeating his lines to himself before he shoots and the best part of the whole documentary is at one point mikas mentions play dirty and Martin Scorsese gets so excited and he's like, oh man, play dirty. Plays on Showtime all the time. Last few months. Why do they keep showing that movie? Uh, but they show it flat too. And as he's talking, the camera moves over to just Leonardo DiCaprio like waiting in a doorway for the shot to start. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, this is like any other job. They're not making great art and it's not like silence or no one can sit like it's a Christopher Nolan set. It's also just nice to get a little bit of a glimpse of Martin Scorsese's personality or the amount of Martin Scorsese Scorsese's personality that you would see if you visited him on a set, because he's very busy. Uh, He likes Jonas. He loves Jonas. So occasionally he'll come over and chat with Jonas a little bit about the history of experimental cinema. You know, at one point he says something like, yeah, I was editing Goodfellas and I watched the Stan Brakhage films and it was like it was like being renewed. It was like being refreshed. And, you know, you see how kind of joyous and uh, boisterous he is with his collaborators. You get a bit of a sense of the way he interacts with Leonardo DiCaprio from a distance. I love how Martin Scorsese at one point is like, oh, he's a cinematographer. He shot Fassbender movies as if like the cinematographer didn't shoot like tons of famous uh, Martin Scorsese films as well. It's like, well, I got to sell him to Mika somehow. Fassbender, Fassbender. This documentary is boring at times, but it's a it's a good kind of boring. It's like ASMR. Well, it's like looking through a keyhole of something that you feel you should never be able to see because it's supposed to be cataloged and manicured in a very specific way. And here you just get it completely off the cuff. And isn't it just amazing that we have a film like this? There are so many directors like... I would love to see a movie like this about Alfred Hitchcock or Charlie Chaplin or... D.W. Griffith. I could sum them up for you if we did have them. They're all jerks and nobody likes working on their sets. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Although I would love to see photographic evidence of it. But yeah, here's here's just Martin Scorsese working on a couple of very normal days. At one point, Leonardo DiCaprio's like, yeah, I've worked with the maestro a couple of times. And it's like, he calls him the maestro? He's made like three movies with him by this time. <laughs> so to sum up, Jonas Mikas's life is long and vast. His productivity is enormous. He's not necessarily the guy that you get into first if you're interested in experimental film, although if you are interested in experimental film, all roads lead to him. And if you're interested in that path, I highly encourage you to check out the movie journal book. It's a great introduction to the avant-garde wave because you get to follow along a guy who's discovering it and just enthusiastically sharing with the reader. Oh, you got to check this out because it's great. And you don't even have to love avant-garde and experimental film to love this book too because it's just the musings of a hungry omnivorous cinephile there's a part where he gets questioned by the fbi very funny it's just like he's just fun to read (laughs) so if you like film you should read his movie journals so justin 
Do we have any letters we this week? We do have letters. As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. But before we get into them, we should remind people, if you're not a Patreon subscriber, subscribe now. We're going to mention it again this episode, but we want to get to 300. All right, now on with the letters. Just making sure if anybody skips when they hear us finish the letters. <laughs> we got gotcha. you. No escaping that way. So our first letter is from Justin Driscoll, and it goes, Thanks for doing what you do. I've been listening to your show for close to two years now. I have found I always appreciate the high standard you both set for whatever it is you're discussing. I can tell it is consistently of high scholarship and passion, and I love the fact that the high standard is applied to everything you discuss. I can't think of any film podcast that can treat both 70s hardcore gay porn and Nick Park with the same level of passion, care, and respect. However, it was your Robin Williams episode that solidified my love of your show. I'm glad that we did 70s gay pornography because now we have the extreme people can mention when they talk about the show where they're like, they did 70s gay hardcore pornography. And I guess, yeah, Nick Park is a good other extreme. I just want to say that, yes, we did 70s gay pornography, but we did the most famous one. We did Wakefield Pool. We didn't get into like the weeds. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. As the letter continues, I disagreed with a significant portion of your Robin Williams episode, but that is not why I bring it up. I bring it up because the way you both have done the show means I appreciate your perspective on whatever it is you're discussing. I may have disagreed with some of your conclusions on Mr. Williams' filmography and legacy, but I don't just want to listen to an echo chamber of my own opinions. I want to be challenged and shown other perspective. And both of you did that masterfully with your Robin Williams episode. Well, thank you. That's uh, very much appreciated. And I also just want to say that we were maybe a little hard on Mr. Williams, but I, I'm not I'm not going to say something nice about him. What I'm going to say is if you love Robin Williams, that's terrific. I think we were very complimentary to his like great performances, World's Greatest Dad, that we had like a reaction to. Now, Mrs. Doubtfire, I mentioned it recently when I visited my dad, where I was like, why do we watch Mrs. Doubtfire so much? And he was like, because it's hilarious. <laughs> So there you go. Yeah, people people think that until they watch it again. Uh, the letter continues. This may be cheesy, but I think your show is the best form of cinephilia. It is clear that you both love the whole of film and you both want to share it with others rather than lord it over them. It's always an enjoyable time when I get to spend listening to you talk about whatever subject it is you're discussing. I don't want to request a series of episodes. I'm just excited to see what you do next. Thank you for your hard work. Oh my God, I'm going to cry. Respectfully, Justin. This is not me. <laughs> That's so sweet. P.S. Justin, your Golden Ninja video series is astounding, and I anxiously await each new release. Well, thank you. The ultimate letter. Uh, yeah, we're really the Jonas Mikas of our uh, generation. I knew one of us was going to say it. <laughs> I was, when we started talking about him five minutes in, I was like, I got to wait for that, like, you know, break where one of us can jump in and say it. <laughs> Well, I wish more podcasts did cover as wide range of stuff as we do, but, you know, sometimes the hosts aren't interested or they know that their audience won't go with it. And I'm glad that a lot of our audiences have been open to stuff that they're not really interested in just because they're like, oh, the episodes aren't too long and they're probably going to talk about it fairly enthusiastically. So I'll check it out. I mean, so many people told us stuff like, you know, I watched Bela Lugosi versus a Brooklyn Gorilla and I would have never watched it if you guys hadn't talked about it. Or even Hong Kong cinema. A lot of people have messaged me and said, this is something I never had any interest beyond the basics of Jackie Chan. And you guys have really opened a new world for me, which... Well, and also we have to do this stuff so that we can we can uh, pave the way so other podcasts can do it like a <laughs> year from right. now. I hope there'll be symposiums about me and Will when we pass away at the right... Eight- old age of 96 like i was watching today about jonas Mikas being like the way they talked about 70s gay hardcore pornography even though that they're not gay so brave so brave 
So thank you very much for the letter, uh, Justin. And I really appreciate that you listen. So our second letter goes, Hey, Will and Justin. Hope you're all managing well with the fluctuating COVID precautions. I came to the podcast somewhat oddly. My studies over the years have focused on experimental and small gauge cinema, a realm which has opened up slightly by the beginner's guide approach to cinema you provide in each episode. Wow, we really are like the Jonas Mikas of our generation, Will. (laughs) Uncaring of the often arbitrary hierarchies between high and low art. My suggestion for a case study would be Joan Milken Silver, a forgotten filmmaker from the New Hollywood era whose film I discovered recently, Chilly Scenes of Winter and Between the Lines, are particular highlights that mine regional specificity from the cinematically underrepresented Salt Lake City and Boston. Respectively, Crossing Delancey and Hester Street are great also. Uh, I'm actually vaguely familiar with this author because I've seen uh, Chilly Scenes of Winter, the movie that she directed, and it's great. I actually have her on a list of filmmakers that we should do. I heard Bill Ackerman on the Supporting Characters podcast talk about how much he likes that movie. I think it might even be his favorite movie, so I, I don't know it. I would love to see it. What's great about that movie is it's kind of like a romantic comedy for middle-aged people or you know 30 year olds uh it's the dad from home alone john hurd <laughs> and it's like ferris bueller's day offish because he keeps like turning into the camera or actually 500 days of summerish except the film is aware that he is a stalker crazy person and that the viewer slowly becomes aware of that as it plays as well like, it doesn't tip its hand or anything like that but you realize as it plays like oh no this person this is not healthy and it's not good and that's why the movie's great letter writer continues might i also suggest the likes of Bruce Bailly, Monte Hellman, and John Epstein for future episodes? There are many others, but I'll restrain myself for now. Best regards from a continually locked down Melbourne, and remember, the real earnest were the friends we made along the ways. <laughs> James Waters. <laughs> uh, we know one guy who voted for Ernest in our poll. Uh, how have we not done Monte Hellman? <laughs> he's come up many times when we've discussed episodes, and he's always just been like, yeah, we'll do him, we'll do him a little later. I would love to do Monte Hellman. He's great. You know what? I'm going to add him to the top of the list right now as we're talking. So much to talk about there. Iguana, Tulane Blacktop, Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. <laughs> yeah, I'd be very excited to talk about his work. All right. So as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. My name is Justin Glue. I'm Will Slime. Thanks for listening. Hello, this is Justin, and I apologize for the abrupt ending to that episode, but the stuff that we talked about after the letters actually don't apply anymore. Unfortunately, the Patreon episode that we recorded had some technical difficulties with it. We'll make up for that very soon. And the episode topic for next week does not apply because technically next week is Shocktober. So we're going to have a shocking horror-based episode for you instead of a subject that has no shocks in it. Also, we reached 300 patrons since we recorded this episode, so I would like to thank every new patron, who include Hunter Sawyer, Ivy Parsons, New Cole Flowers, John Petrovic, Mr. S, Thomas Shepard, John Mockney, Jeff Wood Jones, Eric Ward, Aileen O'Daley, Sadie Hawkins Pod, David Wynn, Jacob Shore, Adam Nab, and Jennifer Gibbons. Thank you so much for becoming patrons. 
uh, we will be doing a special marathon episode by the end of the month. And if you're listening and you're still not a Patreon subscriber, if you become a patron this month, you will also get access to that episode. Because if you become a patron after November, you will not get to listen to it. But you'll still get our whole catalog that's up there. We would not continue to do this show without our loyal patrons. So we thank you immensely. And now, back to the regular schedule of programming. Oh, it looks like it's a time for another Bond update, because Will Sloan and his partner have been watching James Bond movies. That's right. This week, I watched The Spy Who Loved Me, starring Roger Moore from 1977. Wait, wait, wait. I saw the ones you watched previously to this. Shouldn't you have gone to Skyfall and then Spectre? Oh, I will. But I was interested in revisiting the Roger Moore era specifically revisiting the one that I think is the consensus choice for the best one, right? Spy Who Loved Me. 50-year-old Roger Moore just huffing and wheezing around. I saw this one when I was a kid. I remembered it being okay, and I was wrong. It's not very good. The, the Spy Who Loved Me, it's it's bad, I think. <laughs> I mean, it's not exciting. It's boring for long stretches. James Bond is, you know, kind of an oily creep. 125 minutes! <laughs> Roger Moore, I think, is a pretty boring screen presence. And there's that scene at the beginning of the movie where he's skiing, and it's just constantly cutting back and forth between him in front of rear projection and then some stunt double who's skiing. And it's just not very exciting. Does that make you worried about the continued exploration of the James Bond franchise, which you were uh, planning on doing? Uh, yes, it does. Because if this is the like best one that people say, you couldn't even get like some camp value out of it. Like, ha, 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 I'm laughing at the movie. Well, look, I've, I've seen worse movies. It's fine. It's got all the Bond stuff in it. You've got your Q. You've got your Jaws. You've got... Uh, money pennies in there you know you've got scenes where he's running around and you know throwing his big slow punches at people it's got that theme song so you know there are things to enjoy in it but overall it's a bit boring and yes i think it bodes poorly for further exploration of the roger moore era my god he made james bond movies so long i'm looking here and it's like 1985, A View to a Kill. <laughs> have you seen A View to a Kill? No, nah, I probably have, but I don't remember anything about it. Our friend Peter was telling me at one point that like, he and some friends, Peter likes James Bond, and he and his friends were watching A View to a Kill with somebody who had never seen a James Bond movie before. And as a joke, they decided to start talking about James Bond in that movie as if he's like really cool. Well, let's be honest. They believe it deep down inside. Well, yeah, that's why it's not so hard to talk about that kind of stuff. There's a long <laughs> scene in that movie where it's like Money Penny and M and Q are at the racetrack and they just look so fucking old, just incredibly <laughs> old. And like they were watching this going like, oh, he's so cool. Like, look at look at that awesome suit. Did the person just get up and leave the room and never come back? They've never spoken to them ever again. They should have. 